If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. On November 1st, 2022, Bobby Joe Claybrook Jr. was sentenced to 40 years in a federal prison for what he did to our guest today. Join us. Welcome to Chasing Evil. I'm Chris Gotzik. By now you know I like to tell the stories of the survivors as well as those who chase evil. Today, they're one and the same. On November 2nd, 2020, Shane and Joe approached the suspect's home. This suspect was on the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation's top 10 most wanted list for charges including attempted murder. But before they could knock on the door, bullets ripped through the window and into Shane and Joe. The suspect is Bobby Joe Claybrook Jr., and he has shot Shane once and Joe three times. I'm here in Jackson, Tennessee, with U.S. Deputy Marshal Shane Brown and Tennessee Department of Corrections Special Agent Joe Fry, and both are members of the Marshal's Two Rivers Violent Fugitive Task Force. How are you all feeling? I feel good. Right? You healed up? Yes, completely. Mine was in the vest, though, so I really didn't get hurt. His doesn't count. <laughs> Well, let's just jump into Bobby Joe. After you're given a name, what's the first thing you do to start the pursuit? Well, the important thing is to put yourself at the same place at the same time as your target. So that means getting to know your target and being able to anticipate his moves. So it always starts with a lot of research, figuring out who the person is, who they know, where they're from, where they're likely to be, who's likely to know where they are. Um, and that's a lot of that's a lot of research. That's a lot of office work. How much do you delve into the backstory? Yeah, uh, as much as we can gather. So there's a lot of open source and law enforcement databases. We don't limit ourselves just to that. We'll look at your social media pages, anything that we can find. And uh, Bobby Joe sort of had a a storied history. Um, we actually tracked him way back in 2016 on another alleged shooting that he was involved in. And a lot of times we talk to we talk to the local officers uh, in the jurisdiction where he's charged out of. Um, most of the times they have a working knowledge of that person, whoever that is. Um, they have police reports. They can tell us what kind of cars he's been seen in before, who he hangs out with, the neighborhood he runs in, his gang affiliation. We look at police reports to see how he's behaved in the past whenever he was. They attempted to arrest him. You know, I mean, if he if he's got a history of running in cars, then that's one thing we want to try to mitigate on the front end to where we don't get in a position where we have to do that. Uh, ideally, we always want to trap him inside of a structure somewhere that we can control and, and, and contain him that way. What did you find out about Bobby Joe? What kinds of things did you find out that helped inform you on how you were going to go after him? Bobby Joe had a very violent criminal history. He had uh, 
served time for another homicide, I think 20 years or in the neighborhood. Uh, he had been paroled at one point and charged with yet another uh, homicide that, that we tracked him for. Um, he was known to be a gang enforcer and a high-ranking gang member in uh, Dyersburg, Tennessee. What what gang was he affiliated with? Gangster Disciples. And is is gangster are the gangster disciples pretty prevalent in uh, in Tennessee? I would say yes, especially in West Tennessee, and they have a reputation of being very organized and potentially very violent. Yeah, pretty much of all the gangs that are out here that we encounter, and there's a lot of them. The gangster disciples are actually structured, organized. They have a they have leadership positions. Um, they have penalties if you don't follow the rules and, and do things you're not supposed to do. So of the ones we deal with, they're, they're generally the more dangerous. And what kind of business is the Gangster Disciples in? How do they make their money in the state? Uh, they sling dope. Uh, their memberships or their members are expected to pay dues. So uh, a lot of them engage in uh, everything from petty street crime to armed robbery uh, to funnel money uh, up that pyramid. So um, as long as it's a sanctioned activity by the, the gang, the gang kind of knows what you're doing, they don't care where the money comes from. I would say the lion's share comes from dope, but uh, mm-hmm. prostitution, uh, uh, money laundering, extortion, armed robbery, all of those are on the table. So you got Bobby Joe's name. You've, you're doing some background on him. You're finding out his, his record is a long and illustrious, I guess. Yes. <laughs> it's distinguished in the wrong way, perhaps. And you start constructing your strategy, I guess, on yes. how you're going to uh, try to find him. Now, do you presume he's going to stick around or he's going to flee the area and the state? We had prior experience with him. Back in 2016, we pursued him on a homicide and he was the fish that got away. Um, I was new on the task force back then and um, at that time, I thought I was the best fugitive hunter in the world, and I could not get a whiff of this guy. Uh, we did dozens of interviews, executed dozens of search warrants, and I never got a clue as to his whereabouts. He was ultimately arrested in a traffic stop in Cincinnati, Ohio, uh, with a completely new crew. Uh, again, I believe affiliated with the Gangster Disciples, but it effectively cut off all communication that we could detect with friends and associates and family back here in Tennessee and successfully evaded us. What, what percentage of guys actually can go through with cutting with cutting off ties to family and friends? That's a small percentage. I'd say very small. Yeah. Um, we could probably count on one hand the number of guys that we can say could could actually pull that off. Uh, and, and many times for us, it, it's better if uh, once the guy catches a charge and uh, we get assigned to the case. It's better if they leave the jurisdiction they're in uh, because, number one, it gets them out of their comfort zone. They're they're having to travel to a new place uh, and establish new ties or, you know, they're just not comfortable in other places. And, um, the, the you know, local police departments oftentimes will burn up every address or associate they have for that guy to the point that when we come in, we're basically having to start from scratch. Uh, so if they'll leave the jurisdiction, um, oftentimes we can pick them up or pick up information on them in other ways like social media, uh, electronic stuff, um, uh, family members or friends or whatever. Um, People like their social media. Yes. E- even if they're on the run, they still like their social media? Oh, oh they yes. can't put it down. 
I mean, they can't put it down. Can't uh, stay off the book. You know, your name may be Bill Johnson, and you think you go on the run and you change your name to Dip Dizzy Whistle and think you're going to hide out, you know, on social media. But we're going to find that. I mean, you're still going to be friends with your friends and your relatives, and you know, you find a relative, trace it back to Dip Dizzy Whistle. And you know you're you're on a new trail. Then I've read stories, but people still take pictures with that of of themselves on the run, where it's identifiable where they are. Absolutely, and po- and and post it. Yeah, those are the easy ones. Absolutely, and there's a lot of them. There's a lot. <laughs> and of so them, yeah. this guy, say he runs from Jackson, Tennessee, to Nashville, Tennessee, and he posts a picture up there outside of an apartment complex. Well. We have contacts with marshals there, with local officers there, uh, and that's a big part of the job is networking and meeting that patrol officer that pays attention. And you shoot the guy a picture in Nashville and say, hey, you recognize this apartment complex? Yeah, I know where that, right where that is. Well, then, you know, we've got a, right. a solid place to go look. Right. I was told in the old days, criminals used to get burner phones. They'd use them for a little bit, and then they'd toss them. But that the trend now is for criminals to buy the top-of-the-line iPhone, and they're not so anxious to discard those. Well, you're talking about discipline, and that's what most of these criminals lack. So uh, the the ability to cut ties with friends and family and not hold on to that $800 iPhone that you love so much and, and not talk on that Facebook page that you've uh, sort of preened and pruned for the last 15 years, that's a very difficult thing to do. Is, is there a lot of times from what you've seen, is there a certain sense of uh, of satisfaction in evading police so much so that they can't wait to tell their friends about it? I think so. I think that that comes into play a lot. And the, <laughs> so. the, the, the pictures that you're talking about, like where, where you post a picture of yourself on the run, when we see that, that's somebody that's somebody trying to show off. Oh, it's a mistake. Yeah, we've even had them post photographs on Facebook specifically calling us out hey u.s marshals you know come get me flipping the bird hey u.s marshals come find me and then i mean you just threw the glove down it's a it's a challenge now i mean you called us out so you, uh, you become you become our main focus until you go to jail right. none of those guys get away yeah none of those guys get away <laughs> you just say honey i may not be home for a little bit that's right oh yeah, yeah. and my, my wife can attest to that um 26 hours 40 hours uh, two days whatever you know just just staying out how much of uh the fugitive hunting that you do takes place in a more rural environment 80 percent probably 80 percent yeah Yeah, well in this area we've got um my area covers about 17 counties our area and um we have we can be working inner city gangsters on a homicide today and be working meth heads in you know bitten county up in rural west tennessee tomorrow um which is actually much harder than working uh, inner city. Rural areas are really difficult and much more dangerous, really, in my opinion, for us. Absolutely. But personally, you feel more comfortable in an urban environment. You like you're a country boy. Oh yeah, because you can you can take a you can take a homicide suspect here in Jackson, Tennessee. Um, we can wrap that guy up in a couple of days most of the time. But you take a meth head in in in, in the rural areas wanted for you know a robbery or, or on a meth charge and he will run until there's no running left and no telling what he'll break along the way and you know shoot it out with you and everything else he, he doesn't sleep he's paranoid he's constantly looking for you he's constantly moving it's hard to anticipate where somebody's going to be tomorrow morning when you'd like to get them when they don't know where they're going to be tomorrow morning right right yeah it's not generally the bobby joe claybrooks that shoot at us it's 
generally it's the white guys that are strung out on meth that you know will do anything to get away i mean right those are those are the guys we found to be most dangerous right calling all lovers of mystery prepare to don your detective hat in june's journey a free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of june parker a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death Take a trip in time to the glitzy 20s and play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. The thrill is endless with new chapters added weekly, allowing you to not only enjoy the detective adventure, but also to personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. So Bobby Joe evades law enforcement for three months. Yeah, uh, a little over three months, I think, and And, uh, was very successful at doing so. So who are you talking to to try to find him? Are you talking to other gang members, for instance? Absolutely. Talking to gang members, talking to family, talking to friends. A lot of the family members, of course, have gang affiliations. So, And what, yes. what's in it for them to help you? Oh, uh, not much. Uh, and yeah. Bobby Joe has a reputation for violence and a reputation for witness intimidation. So uh, he's got a good track record of keeping people quiet. And in this most recent case, I think Bobby Joe had gone to his ex-girlfriend, ex-wife's house because found out she'd had a new man and basically kicked in the door and shot him several times. Several times. times. Um, That's what, I was going to get into what his most recent crime was. And absolutely, and yes, that's that's what that's what he was wanted for, and that was ultimately his undoing because unlike his prior crimes that were maybe gang-motivated or, for lack of a better term, business-related crimes, this one was more personal. And he hurt some people's feelings in his family, in his uh, ex-wife or ex-girlfriend's new boyfriend's or new husband's family. And so maybe people were willing to talk a little bit more this time as opposed to last time. And he and he killed the gentleman he shot. No, he he survived. Uh, so he was wanted for attempted second degree murder, I think, uh, on this charge. And, right. Uh, but he was, I believe, he was grievously wounded. So what distinguishes first degree murder from second degree murder? Second degree murder is usually where it's not premeditated. It's an act okay. of uh, a, 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 a passioned crime, not not previously thought out. So okay. getting angry at someone and killing them is generally second degree murder. Uh, planning to kill somebody uh, and then executing on that on a preconceived notion is first degree murder. Right. Okay. So he he hurt some feelings. He he maybe uh, uh, shot the shot the wrong person, so to speak. Yeah, that's uh, fair. I mean, just uh, was it completely. There was no gang, no business related. So, Not that I'm aware of. No. So they didn't ha- maybe have uh, as much motivation to to cover him. I, I would say that was a big part of this because the first time we pursued him, I think the gang worked really hard to uh, hide him from us. Uh, this time, this was more of a personal personal matter, and I don't know that his fellow gang members or the hierarchy within that gang was interested in spending resources and defending him like they were before. Uh-huh. Well, in this case, the the source we eventually got the information that put us on the right track um, did not feel comfortable cooperating did not want to cooperate um but it it got to a point where that person knew we were not going away and 
it becomes a situation where they want to survive as far as not going to jail or not getting hemmed up. And so it's a question between me or them and the bandit. So right. if you you're know. if you're on parole and you withhold information about where somebody who's being sought uh, certainly for a homicide is that is that a, is that a crime? Oh yes. Oh yeah. Well, if it may not be, you have no positive duty to share information with the police. But if you uh, work in such a manner that aids the 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 fugitive in any way, whether that's uh, um, providing information to third parties, uh, a sandwich out of your refrigerator, water out of your tap, money out of your wallet, uh, a place to sleep on the couch, uh, anything like that. So, so that, that can get you in trouble. Mm-hmm. And we're very upfront with the, with the family members and the girlfriends and the associates. You know, we tell them, look, we know he's been here, um, but he's wanted now. We're telling you he's wanted now. Um, if he comes to your front door, you don't have to call me, but you better not let him in this house. Um, if he asks you for money, that's, that's helping him to run and that's a crime and I'll charge you with it. Uh, so no food, no water, no comfort, no safety, no bus tickets, no nothing. Uh, and if we catch you doing it, you're going to suffer for it. And generally they believe what we're telling them because I mean, sometimes we do prove it. Well, we mean it. Yeah. 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 So in this case, you had a confidential informant. So let's talk about confidential informants for a second. Do they ever get called into court to testify and does that fear of having to go to court uh, naturally make them a lot more reluctant to give you any information? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. But but some, a lot of times I tell people, I don't even really want to know your name. I'm not going to write it down. I'm not going to subpoena you into court. I'm looking for a body. I'm not looking to so- solve a crime. Um, there and, and that puts people at ease. And in addition to we're an outside agency coming in uh, and they're used to dealing with the local jurisdiction. And unfortunately, most people think that every local officer is dirty. But here you got uh-huh. these federal marshals coming in here and, you know, people tend to get more at ease talking to us. And and, and that's not nothing against the local agencies because they're 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 very good at what they do. And we couldn't do what we did without them. But there, there's always that perception in the in the in the general public the marshal service is is unique in that way so uh anybody that's acting as a confidential informant in the investigation of a crime is subject to being subpoenaed to court and being a witness that has to tell their story to prove guilt but the marshal service doesn't investigate crimes so one of the things that uh, helps us is that when we're talking to these confidential sources we can tell them you're not going to court. We're not in, your testimony is not necessary mm-hmm. uh, to to convict this guy. We're not even investigating the crime. You're just providing us information on their whereabouts, and that's over. So that helps us. Right. That's something that we can offer and we can follow through on that maybe lo- other agencies cannot. And sometimes there's a reward involved. Yes, sometimes. Yeah, sometimes there is. There's money available for that, um, but it. But, the you, but, but the Marshal Service doesn't have FBI money. No, no, no we <laughs> no, wish. No, 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 only the FBI has FBI money. Um, but our job is no different than it was in 1789. The judge gives you a warrant and says, go get this person. They don't tell you how to go get them. They right. just say, go get them. All right. So it's uh, November 2nd. Yes. 2020. We've gotten information on the approximate location of Bobby Joe. Uh, we've got it narrowed down to a street. We believe we want to sort of eliminate the surrounding houses. Um, Bobby Joe's got a serious criminal history, so we call 
uh, some friends with the local agency, the Jackson Police Department, specifically Metro Narcotics, that we work with and train with. They know what they're doing. And this was standard preparation. Even though it was Bobby Joe Claybrook and looking at his uh, criminal history, he wasn't really all that special. I mean, he was just another homicide suspect. We've arrested hundreds of them. Uh, bringing Metro Narcotics with us is something we would have done on 50 other cases. And Uh quite frankly, I wasn't worried about it. I had missed Bobby Joe back in 2016. I felt like a, I felt like a a rookie uh, on that day. I mean, I was, I had, I had butterflies in my belly because this was the day I was going to get Bobby Joe. There was nothing negative happening in my head on the way to that location. Uh, I was going to finally arrest Bobby Joe Claybrook. This mm-hmm. was my moment of triumph. Right. So uh, we approach and do do our thing. We're making a tactical approach on the house. I remember uh, we pulled up. Uh, we had a good plan to surround the house and sort of quarantine it. After that's done, everything slows down because we've got all day. Uh, and I noticed a neighbor sort of uh, peeking through a privacy fence. So I ran over, and uh, I think the guy may have been smoking marijuana because he was try- immediately trying to hide something, and I yeah. smelled that smell, and I was like, hey, buddy, no, no, don't worry about it. I'm not here about that. I'm here about this. And I held up the TBI Most Wanted poster with his picture on it and said, I'm looking for this guy. And uh, he just sort of pointed at the place that, that we knew him to be or mm-hmm. we suspected him to be. Mm-hmm. So, because, because before we went out, we had already, we had already felt good about three, about three different houses. Sure. Um, we had – uh, printed up a photograph of that location. Uh, we had Metro Narcotics over here, basically doubled the size of our team. We usually run six to eight. I think we had about 12, 14 people. Uh, we briefed them very well on the criminal history, on their role in what we do. Uh, their their job was basically going to be to hold the perimeter, and, and I think one guy wound up approaching with us. Um, we briefed a medical plan, an, an evacuation plan, how close is the hospital, do we have airbag available? I mean, all these things before we even went out there. I mean, that day we felt so good that we were going to get him that day that um, we we spent a little more time than normal just actually giving everybody their their specific roles and what we do. Mm-hmm. And every box was checked that day. We were we were very happy. And like I said, I had a very good feeling approaching that house. Uh, we approached from forty five degree angles. Uh, uh, the the duplex was on the end of a dead end street. Um, it sort of was the duplex with the um, driveways in the center was sort of an alcove where you parked mm-hmm. so that the doors of the duplexes faced one another. Right. Um, I came from the left towards the dead end street. Shane came from the right. We were going to be contact and cover for the front door. Uh, approached and uh, the perimeter was set. Um, and I was doing a threat assessment on the door. Uh, that's We don't stand directly in front of the doors, but I'm looking for peepholes, windows, anything that uh, could be a problem, determining if I'm going to knock and how so. And Right. And some of our more dangerous situations for us is on the approach and at the door. Um, so in that particular day, Joe, there was four of us actually approaching the door. Joe was in the center. Had Mark Taylor with Metro Narcotics on the on his left, and Mark is as big as that door frame. He's like six five, three hundred and forty pounds, and then me on Joe's right, and I'm as big as I am, five nine, one sixty, and then Mike Bradbury behind me. And I remember as we were approaching, I was covering a window. I had I had a long gun. I was covering a window uh, on the second floor of the house, and Bradbury, Mike Bradbury, looks at me and says, "Hey, 
I'll get that window. You get the window right there by the door on the, immediately on the porch there. And um, from there, we walked up onto the porch. Um, three of us standing basically abreast, uh, Mark, Taylor, Joe, and then me. And I'm covering that window where the, where the gunfire came from, uh, you know, in the next few minutes. And Joe reaches out with his left hand to knock on the door. And his knuckles never even touched the door when when the holes started coming through the glass and it sounded like cannon going off, uh, just rapid-fire uh, rounds coming through the window. And Joe was uh, – I, I didn't realize that Joe had been shot at that point, but I knew that something had happened because we're getting gunfire and Joe's kind of down, bending over just a little bit. Um, and I remember for a brief second just looking and – you could see, I could see the glass, little tiny pieces of glass going by my head that the, the bullets were pushing out with it as they were coming by. And I, I remember not even really thinking that uh, somebody's trying to kill me, but I knew I'm getting shot at. And within about the first three shots, safety's off and I'm pumping rounds into the window. Joe actually managed to get off several shots uh, before he went down like, down down because after that first one hit his arm he caught another one in the leg left leg uh and at that point joe kind of bent over um and caught another round right down his vest it went between his vest and his t-shirt right on top of his spine went underneath the skin traveled about three inches and came out and that and that's something we found out later but um so when joe goes down he kind of as we're trained to do, he kind of tries to scurry out of the way. I see him go down kind of like to my left, sort of maybe behind me a little bit. Well, I just took a step over, planted my foot, my left foot, continued to fire, and I guess as soon as my leg planted, I took one in the in the center of the vest. And, it, you know, Joe was able to go around the corner um, and start administering aid to himself. Um, and looking back – the guy had a perfect ambush position with us because uh, we've got some photographs to show you. Uh, when you step on that porch, you're looking at a five-by-five, five basically, platform there uh, with a, a Tahoe tucked in real close on, on the right side of the porch and then the door on the left and mm -hmm. then the wall in the front. So the only thing you've got is backwards. Yes. Mm -hmm. and, and Joe scurries around the corner backwards. I'm standing there continuing to fire. As soon as I see he's out of the way, I go around the corner and, and keep an eye on the window, uh, look over, and Joe is putting tourniquets on himself. I think he started with the arm first. No, I started with the leg. Okay, he gets a leg tourniquet on perfectly. I mean, just like in, you know, everything we've trained for. Uh, gets the, you know, starts talk, trying to get the second tourniquet on his, his left arm. And um, I, I knew that Mike Bradbury had gotten out of the way, and, and it – Turns out Mike had gone back to his car to try to get a shield to come up. You're you're standing by the door. Yes. And you're just about to I was, knock. I, I was actually uh, I, I was reaching out with my left hand and I was considering knocking. And I remember I, I was staring at the small white round button of the doorbell, and I actually decided to push the doorbell instead. Instead, it was across the across the door. So I was reaching across the door to push the button when I heard the gunfire. 
and the gunfire was so loud. I guess it was because it was in that tight area that he's describing between mm-hmm. the uh, two walls and a large SUV that my initial thought was the target or somebody has presented themselves in that window that Shane is, is covering with a weapon and Shane is lighting them up. That's, that, that, that's what was happening in my mm-hmm, mind, that mm-hmm. the gunfire was so loud and so close, it was Shane right on my right uh, shooting somebody, shoot, uh, engaging a threat in that mm-hmm. window. But then I see, just like he described, pieces of glass flying past me. Uh, I'm, I feel the wood chips and I feel these uh, now unmistakable sensations of being shot, which is... Uh, I mean, I'm assuming you've never been shot before. No, no, that was my first and hopefully only experience. <laughs> right, so the first bullet hits you... In the left arm, in right the left there arm. as I'm reaching over to ring that doorbell. Yes, uh, I, 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 yes, that's the first one that hit me. And it feels like a bee sting and a punch and electric shock all wrapped into one. Uh, and the electric shock is deep and penetrating. I can, I can tell the bullets are going through me. And then uh, past that, I know I've been hit multiple times. I can't tell you where, and I can't tell you how many times. But I remember thinking to myself, if I don't engage this threat, I'm going to die right here on this porch because I'm sustaining lots of gunshot wounds in a very short period of time. But you don't know how extensive the gunshot wounds no. are at this point. You no, don't know I just if there's know I'm getting hit. artery being hit or if there's uh, or or if it's going through uh, muscle. Uh, no, I don't. I, I don't. I don't know any of that. And and quite right. frankly, I don't remember anything from that point on. Right. I, I found out later that I returned two or three rounds in a tight group through that window. So I'm happy about that. But the next thing I remember is being around the corner off the porch laying on my back and I'm laying my pistol down beside me and I'm looking down and there's this dot about a dime sized uh, spot of blood on my pants. I don't see a hole but and I'm I'm reaching down with two of my two of my uh, both my hands to pull both of my tourniquets free cuz I know I have multiple gunshot wounds I just don't know where So you're yet. able even though you're shot you are able to administer some self-care I mean cuz it I takes a little it's a, it's a, it's a little tricky to put on a uh, put on a tourniquet it's only a couple of steps but it's a, it's a it's a process It's a it's something that we train and I'll be a big advocate for the martial service training program right now uh, I had trained on it so much, it was second nature. I was pulling tourniquets free before any thought of I need a tourniquet entered my brain that, that I can recall. Mm-hmm. Um, but as I pulled these tourniquets free, that dime-sized dot of blood became a dinner plate, and my entire left leg was just instantly soaked in blood. And I could tell that it was the inner part of my thigh. So I'm thinking I've got a femoral artery mm-hmm. uh, severed. Uh, so that's that's my initial uh, focus. I've got to get a tourniquet on that leg. Um, so I put the tourniquet on, and I'm tightening it up, and I've realized I've made a mistake because I'm wearing a combat shirt. Now, I realize you don't probably don't know what that means, but it's spandex on the chest, so it's very thin and light and comfortable under your vest, but your sleeves are very heavy canvas, mm-hmm. and they cinch up with Velcro around your wrists. And I scotch guard them because we work in all weather. Mm-hmm. So those sleeves are heavily scotch guarded, so it sort of acts as a raincoat for me too, for my sleeves only. Mm-hmm. And uh, as I'm putting this tourniquet on my leg, that that left that left sleeve on that arm turns into a water balloon. I mean, I can feel the blood sloshing around, and every time I lift my arm up, I can feel it pouring into that spandex 
under my vest. And I realized that leg's not the bad one. My arm's the bad one. And what do they tell you in training? How long, if you do hit an artery, how long do you have to you get got 90 seconds? 90 you got 90, you got 90 seconds. And, uh, I've, I have reason to believe at this point that I've got two arterial bleeds, uh, or might have two arterial bleeds. So I'm thinking it's worse than that. Maybe. So I've got less time than that. So I managed to get the, the first one tightened up and I'm putting on the second one. And the entire time this is happening, there's still a major gunfight happening right over my head. I mean, Shane's still engaging this guy with continuous gunfire. He's still shooting out. Uh, we're on the left side of apartment towards the, the dead end now. Mm. So a good piece of the perimeter team and all of our vehicles are on the other side of the duplex, the other, other side of the structure. Right. So I'm putting this, um, I didn't realize it at the time, when I'm putting the, the arm tourniquet on, uh, the Metro Narcotics detective covering the large window on the front of the house sees that I'm now exposed to a new window, and he just grabs that tourniquet before I can get it secured and drags me to the one-two corner of the house, which in layman's terms is the front left corner of the house to get me out of harm's way uh -huh. while Shane is still engaged in a gun battle. Um, when you practice with the tourniquet, you just assume it's going to work like you're practicing with it, but nobody ever practices with it when they have a, a, oh, yeah. an artery bleed. So did it work? It did. Did it, did uh, it do its, its job the way that you had trained it? Uh, it, it? It did on my leg. I'm still, uh, I guess the, the, the Metro Narcotics detective is, is a, essentially got me levitated, holding on to an unsecured. So it's very tight on my arm, but not right. because it's been secured, but because he's still pulling on it. And uh, he's kind of frozen up. He's got a lot of work to do. He's worried about me. He's worried about this window. And he's pulled me to this left corner of the house where our canine is. And the canine attacks me right there on the corner, grabs, uh, grabs the, the, the drop pouch on my duty belt because he's so fired up from the screaming and the gunfire. I get too close to him, and you don't do that with the canine when he's working. Uh, and he grabs my gear and is, is locked onto me and shaking. So I've got a detective <laughs> holding a tourniquet having, that I need to get free. Uh, I've got my canine handler struggling to get his dog off of my gear because he's latched onto me and shaking. There's a gunfight still going on in the front of the house. No one can get to me. Nobody can get a vehicle to me. And uh, at that point, I look down and I carry a Kong, which is a sort of a toy right. uh, for the dog. Now, right. I'm not the canine handler, but if something happens to the canine handler, I have his reward toy. So... I see it, and I tell the, the detective that's got a hold of my, my, my tourniquet, I said, grab that Kong. If you get, give me that Kong, I can get our canine Echo off of me. And he does, and he lets go of the tourniquet. I grab the Kong and throw it to Echo. Echo completely ignores it. He keeps attacking me, but it is the Kong has been unsuccessful in distracting the dog, right. but it has been successful in distracting the guy holding the tourniquet. So <laughs> hey, when he lets go of it, I'm able to get this, that second Okay, because all I'm thinking about, I'm counting to myself. I'm like, one, five, six, and I'm like, we're, you know, you haven't said yet the tourniquet is secured, no. and I'm just figuring the artery is still open, and I'm oh, like... It, well, it's not. It's not because he's pulling on it so hard. Okay. It's pulled as tight as it would be if it was secured. And that's enough to... I mean, mm -hmm. obviously, I've never been in, into a situation where I've had an artery cut. That's enough 
to stop the artery is I would think like so and it turns out my artery was not severed it was oh, a inter, okay. it was an intermuscle wound and it was bleeding profusely but uh, luckily I did not have an arterial bleed I do believe that however if I had an arterial bleed I, it still would have worked right, right. Uh, that detective was pulling on that trust me when I say he's pulling I was worried he was going to pull my arm off uh he's a big guy right, i think right. he described him as six foot right. four and 360 pounds he's a big guy and right. he was pulling he was i was dangling at one point right. from that tourniquet and, and even with all those distractions joe was ma- able to get the the tourniquet secured it uh, to where it would stop the bleeding it under a, a minute maybe a minute i he would like to take so yeah had both both tourniquets on and uh i know that while he was trying to get the tourniquet secured he said, guys, I've got to get out of here. He said, I'm bleeding out. And it it flew all over me when he said that. I, I just thought, God, you know, we're going to lose somebody today. Um, and as he's saying that, uh, Mike Bradbury had already retreated to his vehicle, secured a, uh, a ballistic shield and was trying to get to us. And as soon as Mike started across the yard, the gunfire from the house came back on again. Um and at that point, Mike had to just retreat, uh, and we're yelling at each other. Uh, and, and it was actually very controlled. Uh, we're positioning people in new places to facilitate an escape for him. Uh, directly behind him was a wooden fence. We had staged one of our safety vehicles on the other side of that. And we haven't even addressed yet the, th- the third bullet. Oh, so, yeah. Oh, so yeah. there's a third bullet that is not being able to be addressed by a tourniquet. I don't even know where it is. He didn't even know it had happened uh, until he got to the hospital. No. Uh, so so later on, I'm in the hospital, and they're treating my wounds, and I say, I think they've got something wrong with my back. And they said, well, you know, you probably fell. You got drugged quite a ways. You got thrown in the back of a pickup truck to get here. I said, no. The the way my leg and my arm feels, my back feels that way too. It feels like a good. If I feel like I know what a gunshot wound feels like, and I feel like I've got another one there. And I've already been through the CAT scan at, at this point uh, to, and somehow I they didn't CAT scan that part of my body because they had no reason to. And the nurses rolled me over and found the third gunshot wound in my back. And where had that bullet? lodged uh, itself the bullet had si- kind of sailed over the top of my head as i was ducking backing off the the porch uh-huh. gone between my neck and the and the uh vest and traveled down the length of my back over my spine entered at one point exited a few minutes uh, a few inches right. later and then lodged on the inside of my bullet resistant vest mm-hmm, mm-hmm. at the bottom near my waist Wow, that's uh, uh, I'm a lucky guy. That, that's very close to my spine. I realize the listeners can't see that picture. That, right. that I told him that's his opportunity to find Jesus right there. Yes, God yes. just said, "Look, <laughs> this is what I can do." Yes, <laughs> we still have this huge problem. I mean, we're going back now to a situation where you're still you've got two tourniquets on. You're still exposed uh, to a window uh, that potentially is a new field of fire. Yeah, so we had a couple of guys uh, over there at that point. We'd gotten a few people close to Joe. Um, they went ahead and just broke out that section of wooden fence. Um, just on the other side of it was a parking lot of an abandoned uh, clinic. Uh, we had staged one of our medevac vehicles there, uh, which was a little odd for us because we actually that day used two vehicles designated as medevac vehicles. And we had uh, Mark Hedden's vehicle on, on the other side of the fence, uh, broke out the fence panel, drug drove through, 
uh, Mark got in the car heading and, and drug uh, McQuillan got Joe into the back seat uh, and off they went to the hospital. Um, and so Joe's gone. Um, we're just standing there still dealing with the situation. Uh, when all this started, um, there's shot spotter sensors in the city. They started going off. Uh, and when those go off, officers are alerted on their devices that there's a shooting or shots being fired somewhere. Um, and they start responding to that area. Uh, we were fortunate we had city and county officers. We had other marshals there with radio access that could go ahead and start calling the outside resources we need to come in and, and help contain the situation. Um, I've actually, my son's a patrol officer here. He was on his day off. He called into work when he saw the shot spotter going off and said, hey, what, what's going on? Shot spotter's going crazy over there. And they were, they were saying, well, your daddy and his team are over there lighting a house up. So, yeah. So, um, so yeah, so we immediately started getting more resources to us. But uh, once Joe left, um, it wound up being just Mark Taylor and I standing on the corner of this, uh, of this uh, brick house uh, with windows on either side of us so to where we had maybe uh, less than less than a foot on each side that we could wiggle and and not be in the line of the fire coming from the house right um, and mark like I said was such a big guy he was squatted down in front of me I was standing behind him kind of basically using mark for cover because he was the biggest thing there I'm gonna tell him you said that yeah <laughs> yeah and and so we uh you know, Someone got the bright idea to contact the SWAT team to because they have an armored vehicle, and the rough plan was to get the vehicle close to the house to provide us cover so we could get out of there. Because you can't get out without cover. No, without you would just cover, be too, way too exposed. Yeah, and that yeah. that lasted over two hours. Uh, we're standing there, and as that's going on, Mark and I are in a position of relative cover. Um, we've got city officers and and narcotics officers and marshals on the street covering the windows um so i've got really no work to do because i can't really see uh the windows very well from where i'm standing um so i just picked up the phone and called joe's wife and said hey um we've just been in a gunfight uh joe's hit he's stable i've already heard it on the radio by this point he's at the hospital um they're working on him he's stable he's not going to die um yeah, but he's he's still pinned down by gunfire. Yeah, and did yeah. she ask you, well, where are you? <laughs> well, and I, and I told her, I said, hey, we're still in the fight, um, but we're in a spot where we really can't do anything right now, so I don't want uh, the, the local sheriff's department to show up at your door because when she sees right. that patrol car, she's going to know things are bad. Right. Oh, right. she would have found out on Facebook. I was, I, said, still, I, I was still I said, on the scene yeah. when people were, are you okay, you know, was appearing right. on my Facebook feed. I found out later. So things are calming down a little bit. Are you engaging in conversation with Bobby Joe at this point, or are you are you guys just outside, just just? I ain't gonna waiting? lie to you. I stood I stood outside the window where I knew he could probably hear me, and I was like, "Let's end this today, you son of a bitch. We're tired of this. You know, if you want to fight, we're here. Let's fight." I, I I said those things over and over to him. Um, at that point, it was it was a it was combat. At that point, right? We were getting shot at. We'd already taken a. a an injured person he was getting shot at and uh i got very angry uh overcome with those emotions you know of 
you know, a friend that you've I've served with this guy for years. And all as all of us have, we're like a family. And, I, you know, I, I decided at that point, hey, you know, you or me, let's let's get this on and finish it. So you say that to him, but you don't really get a response. So you don't know if he wants to throw down or give himself up. He's just quietly weighing his options. It had progressed from a warrant service to, to what I considered combat. And I've been in combat. So it, 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 it had progressed to the level of this is survival. This is you know, fight or, you know, you know, kill or be killed. Honestly, it, it kind of got to that level. Did this relate to any experiences that you had had in combat? Yeah, I, I had a, uh, I had a rifle platoon in the Marine Corps and, uh, Operation Iraqi Freedom in the beginning stages of the invasion over there. Uh, and we engaged in house to house fighting and it kind of took my mind back to that experience. Mm-hmm. Um, but I had, I had come to the understanding that, I couldn't get away from where I was without without getting shot at again, and you know, he wasn't going to come to me. Uh, now I had decided that I was not going in that house. Um, <laughs> I, I, as much as I wanted to, I was not going to go inside the house and try to find him because that's the thing about uh, combat and serving warrants. Um, you don't know who else is in the house. You don't know that there's a, a kid in the house, a mm-hmm. woman in the house. Uh, and that went through my mind as as the time went by. Like I hope to hell we didn't, you know, shoot an innocent person, because right. um, we didn't have any knowledge of who else was in the house at oh. the time. Turned out he was by himself, but we we didn't know. Yeah. And just to, I mean, this is how they were pinned down for two hours. The only reason why I got out was because there was this privacy fence that he's describing that traveled the length perpendicular to the to the um to the dead end street Mm -hmm. and so when mike had tried to get a get to me with this shield and got pushed back by gunfire there was a metro narcotics detective that went all the way across the street into the neighbor's yard and sort of just took off running and made a detective's shaped hole in that fence on the far side of the street and then once everybody else saw what he was doing there, they sort of followed him through that hole and they came towards me on the opposite side of the fence where they could not be seen. Mm-hmm. And uh, by the, about the time I got Echo off of me and I had my uh, tourniquets completely secured, I pointed at that fence and said, I want to go through there. That's our way out. And I no sooner said that than... There's three guys on the other side of that fence breaking that fence out, and they just break a hole within seconds, grab me, and drag me through that, and mm-hmm. I'm gone. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you know, even in the midst of all that chaos, I was able to look around and get some situational awareness and see what people were doing. Everybody had, everybody had work. Everybody was covering a window, a door. They were trying to break a fence. Everybody was doing something, and it was actually really a proud moment uh, to look around and – because we don't work with those guys every single day, but nobody backed up. Nobody mm. ran to get in their car or I'm going to go get help. No, everybody was engaged like we were and trying to find something to do to get us away from the situation we were in. So it was, I mean, it was really, uh, and I, and even though I knew Joe was hurt, uh, I didn't know how badly until later, but I, I mean, I was really proud to look and see, hey, this guy, was trained and he's doing what he's trained to do mm-hmm. and he's saving himself 
Right. I mean, he shot twice that we knew of, and he is actually saving himself. I mean, uh, it's it was just a it was a proud moment. Uh, not like I said before, not really any fear, but I was I was proud and I was very angry at, at what had happened. Um, and you know, oftentimes look back and think, well, what could we have done differently? And that was that particular fugitive that says, I'm not going back, that means it. It's that one in a thousand that really means it. And honestly, there was really nothing to mitigate what happened. I mean, we we had a location that we needed to, to check, and we had to approach it. Otherwise, right. we're not going to know what's in there. Let me, let me ask you just for a second, because you mentioned serving warrants versus combat. If this were combat, would it have gone differently? You try to reduce the risk of harming uh, non-combatants in a war zone, but unfortunately, if you watch the news, it happens. Um, so, yeah, you, you have to be much more careful here uh, serving a warrant. Um, I mean, because the public safety is, in my opinion, is, is number one. I mean, it's right. really before mine. I'm paid to get shot at. Uh, <laughs> but, but, you know, the public safety has to come first and, and then mine next. Yes, uh, and then and then the warrant service, you know, maybe third down on the list. Yeah, that's third priority. Uh, because, you know, we've all of us have been in situations where you see the bandit, and you know you can go get him, but to get from here to there where he is, you may have to wreck three cars. You may have to run over a civilian. I mean, and so you have to be disciplined enough to just let him walk away. Now you find them one time, you can right. find them twice. Right, right. Uh, you can't start a gunfight in a convenience store parking lot. No. You can't pick a fight like that in a, in a public place. Right. So no. public safety has to come first. But once, once, you're, once you're engaged by your target, your fugitive, once he's shooting at you, well, then you're in it now. I mean, right, right. The, the, the choices are getting smaller of what you can do. So you're in the corner. How long does it take before SWAT arrives? Oh, it it was uh, over two hours, and and that's not anything against the SWAT team because they they take time. They're not sitting in an office somewhere right. waiting on a call to come out. They it's a, it's time. a secondary duty. Yeah, they take time to get right. together and gather their gear. They're not going to rush headlong into a situation not knowing what's going on, so they have to brief and all that. Uh, but I do remember calling back uh, on the radio, "Hey, when's the, when's that armored car going to get here? Because uh, I'm kind of ready to go." And um, <laughs> at some point, Mark Taylor looks at me and says, hey, maybe we should move. I said, you know, we got a really cushy spot right here. <laughs> I mean, nobody can really get to us. Uh, we're, we're basically around the corner from where the, the initial engagement occurred. And I'm looking out on the street, and there's uh, several patrol officers with long guns. And their, orient, their weapons are oriented towards the house. And I remember looking at a couple of them and said, hey, I can't see that window, and I can't see that door. So you keep your gun on that door and you keep your weapon on that window. And if dude pops his head out, I need you to pop him in the head and, and end this real quick. Mm -hmm. Before you get hurt because yeah. you're still exposed. Yeah. So SWAT shows up with a, an armored vehicle. Yeah, so, so they show up with a military surplus MRAP, if anybody knows what that is. It's a very big uh, armored vehicle. It's armored all around, um, with usually with a turret mounted on top. Um and, and I remember on the radio saying, hey, tell them to bring the vehicle right up here to the window to block us and, you know, so we can move away from the house. 
uh, and they roll right up and, and put the put the vehicle right against the, the house. Uh, Mark and I were covered. They opened up the back door. We scoot around to the back and climb in, and I was never so happy to see a bunch of guys in my life. Uh, but, yes, when you talk about the argument of military-style vehicles, they're absolutely uh, awesome in situations like that. Uh, they will stop. A bullet's not going to travel through an armored vehicle. Mm-hmm. I drive a Chevy Traverse. It shoots through one end and out the other on that one. When you need one, you need one bad. Yeah, when you need one, you need one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you may never, you may not need it for six months. You may not need it for a year. But buddy, when you need one, you need one. They're irreplaceable. Yeah. Right. You get in the back now that everyone is safe and away. The standoff goes on for how long? I want to say it went on for five hours, maybe. I mean, it was they, they, the. Jackson Police Department came out and set up a command post. They got a Hosha negotiator out there. Um, I remember my supervisor, James Edge, came over and said, hey, uh, you guys are away from the house. SWAT team, JPD's got got the case now. I need you to go ahead and leave. And I I looked at James, and and I've known him for 20 years, and I said, hey, I'm not leaving until he comes out of that house. Uh, I'm the team leader here in Jackson Joe's my friend and my coworker and a member of my team, and I knew what had happened to him, and I said, no, I'm not leaving until this is over. And he was right in every way in what he said, but I felt like I was right in what I said, um, and, and he didn't push the issue, and I appreciated that. And, you know, but as soon as, as soon as Bobby Joe got talked out of the house, James comes to me and says, okay, now you're going to leave. You're going to the <laughs> hospital to get checked out. Right. And, I, and I'm telling him, like, I'm fine. Um, and I had noticed uh, my taser mounts on the front of my vest, and it had, it looked like it had slipped out of its holster, and I reached to push it back in, and it wouldn't secure. And I kept doing that. And finally, I just pulled the thing out and looked at it, and that's when I noticed I had been shot right there in the vest because it had hit the release catch on the, on the taser holster, and broke it, shattered it, went into the taser, and shot the trigger out of the taser. And you're pointing right now to just squ- your square chest, center. square center yeah. on your chest. Yeah, and and I hadn't even, I guess with the adrenaline and all, I didn't even realize it. Given the gunfight that he had just been in, and I have no idea whether he knew he, if he shot somebody or not, what could they possibly say to him to motivate him to come out, given the charges that he's facing? Express to him over and over again that he would not be harmed, that there was no way out, that, you know, this needs to end peacefully. We don't want anybody else hurt. Um, and, and at some point, they wound up exchanging cigarettes for ammunition, uh, just any little thing, cracking the door to get him to give a little bit until he in, uh, eventually just went ahead and came out. And and there was no more incidents after that with him. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Mike McCord, one of the other deputies with us there, drives me to the hospital and I feel like an idiot going to the hospital to get checked out when I'm when Joe's in there bleeding and I'm not bleeding from anything and um but it it worked out good because it turns out my left eardrum was was blown out uh which I didn't realize uh which caused tinnitus ringing in the ears which I'm I still have ringing in the ears Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah, I know I, I know somebody has tinnitus, and it can be absolutely just debilitating. It it's just an extra sound you got to live with. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this this is an opportunity for me to make a marriage joke, yeah, but I'm well, not yes, I'm yes, not going to yes, do yes. it. I was thinking the same thing <laughs> because my wife <clears throat> will in fact be listening to this podcast. Yeah, yeah. So 
So, um, I, I, I guess once I got, uh, once I got to safely away, I, I contacted my wife and let her know that we'd been in a shooting and this, this is my fifth. This is collectively, I think this is nine I've been involved in. You've been uh, involved in nine shootings. Yeah. Pull the trigger in five and present for four other ones. And so it, it's kind of, I'm not saying it's old hat for my wife, uh, but she, she knows what the stakes are, that there's like a lot of uh, life insurance money for me. <laughs> oh. and, and I've told her, look, get a new set of boobs and a Latin pool boy and, and live it up. I mean, you know. Make the most of it. I mean, the kids get free tuition. I mean, it's a win for everybody. You get the bagpipes, the helicopters. The I can awesome think of one person that doesn't win. Yeah. So, so you know, but but I, I called her and she's like, well, okay. I get, you're okay. The, the, and, and it's funny, the last shooting, um, I called her and I said, hey, we, we just got involved in the shooting. This guy's dead and, you know, I'm about to come home, but I'm okay. She said, yeah, can you, you mind going by the grocery on your way out? <laughs> So, so she's, she's, and, and I know she does worry. I mean, they're not saying she does and I know she does, but she knows this is what I do. She lived with me through 23 years in the Marine Corps and now this. And so she's kind of used to the, all this. She's never once said, I want you to stop doing this. I think right. it's too dangerous. Live for your children, blah, blah, blah. You know, it all goes back to the tuition and the life insurance. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> How'd your wife handle it? Uh, she, she was upset, uh, but I think she really appreciated him calling her immediately so that she knew to get in the car. I think I think he offered to send police or helicopters or whatever that she needed to get to the get to the hospital quick, but as soon as she found out that I was stable, she chose to drive herself. Um I remember her walking into the hospital room and saying do they always have a security detail when stuff like this happens? I said, "What are you talking about?" I said, there's a guy right outside your room. Uh, he's got a rifle, and he looks really angry. And I said, no, that's just one of the guys that brought me here. He's angry because his friend got shot, you know. Uh, but, no, she 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 was a champ. She's She was oh my she gosh. was my hero. Yeah, I mean, when I called her, I said, Breck, this is, this is Shane Brown. And she said, something's happened. And I said, yeah, something's happened. I said, Joe's been hurt, but I'm hearing that he's stable and that he's okay. And I said, you know, I just – we're still in it. It's not over yet. We don't have the guy out. And um, I said, but uh, I just I wanted you to hear it. I really wanted her to hear it from me. I've got every one of their wives' phone numbers in my in my phone. If something happens, I mean, I'm not I'm not a marshal service supervisor. I'm just a fugitive team leader. Uh, but we're a family. I mean, I want them to hear it from us first. I don't. I mean, it's just it's just a mm -hmm. pride thing with us. I mean, we. Mm -hmm. We know our families, each of them, you know. We know how many kids we got. We know when mm -hmm. they're going to have a ball game, when they're going to graduate high school. I mean, we know everything about each other. We've worked together for years, so we've watched and I just didn't our want, kids grow yeah, up together. I didn't want a stranger showing up to her door because she's immediately going to have questions. Right, right, right. right. And they're immediately going to try to deflect and not tell her anything. And I told her, I said, Joe's been shot, um, but Joe's okay. Mm -hmm. And for me, I think for me to tell her it was okay, she took it better than some – Sheriff's deputy showing up saying, you got to come with me right now. Because I told her, I said, hey, look, if you, I'll call THP. We could probably get you a helicopter. They'll send him up there and get your, we'll get you here. She said, no, I've got to, I've got to get my son situated and I'm going to get in the car. I'm going to drive myself. And I was like, okay. And that good. meant that she was available to drive me home from the hospital. 
And so. she's she's a tough she's a tough broad like all of our wives. They're yes. all they're all tough. But th- they all know that we all work together daily that we know each other that we're close like family close um they know that if one of us is hurt the other one's going to die saving him or doing whatever i mean you know right well as i said at the top of the episode on november 1st 2022 bobby joe claybrook jr was sentenced to serve 40 years in a federal prison we can safely say that Joe and I were the last two people Bobby Joe's ever going to shoot. And that's good news for everybody. <laughs> that is good news for everyone. Shane, Joe, thanks so much for coming in today and sharing your story. And thank you for putting it on the line every day. We're just getting started, so we'd really appreciate your support. Tell your friends, tell your coworkers, tell the barista when you order your next cup of coffee about chasing evil. And if it's not too much trouble, a five-star rating and a glowing review wouldn't hurt either. Much appreciated. Chasing Evil is produced with the cooperation of the United States Marshals Service and contains interviews with current and retired employees as well as other persons. Opinions, positions, and views expressed by any of them may not reflect the official views, positions, or policies of the United States Marshals Service. Stay safe, everyone. (laughs) 